This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Once you start noticing fat phobia, you won't be able to stop. A coworker comments on what you're eating for lunch. A store only carries your size online. Movie after movie shows you a villain in a fat suit or makes a plus-size character's body the butt of every joke. In our series, Bias Against Bodies, we have spent some time noticing where weight bias shows up in the world around us. We've talked about fitness, travel, fashion, and workplace discrimination. But along the way, we've heard some uplifting stories, too. It's a really, really incredible thing that I get to do, showing people what's possible in the body that you have. I think now more than ever, fat people are feeling empowered and hopefully loving themselves. You're able to at least feel seen, even if it's a difficult battle, you can feel like you're not alone. Most of the trip, we didn't even talk about being plus size. It was more just like you knew that you were in a safe space. With Vintage, I feel a real kind of kinship to the cool fat women who have come before me. I deserve clothes that fit my body the way it is today, the way it is tomorrow. I don't put anything on my body that doesn't feel fabulous. Now we're wrapping up our month-long series by discussing health care. Joining us to discuss her experience and her new memoir, Weightless, is writer and magazine editor Yvette Dion. Welcome to Reset, Yvette. Thank you so much for having me. So your book, Weightless, it came out last month, and you have said that this was a long time coming for you. How so? It was a long time coming for me because it wasn't the book I originally set out to write. The original iteration of this book dealt a lot more with the relationship between fatness and dating. And then once I was diagnosed with two chronic illnesses when I was 29 and 30, I knew the book really needed to shift to become this iteration of the book because it really allowed me to better understand the ways in which our medical industry mistreats fat people, misdiagnoses fat people, overlooks and dismisses fat people. And that's why it has taken me so long to write this version of the book. We'll talk more about your experience with illness and and how that in turn changed your relationship with your body. Yes. So I was diagnosed with heart failure when I was 29. I was subsequently diagnosed with pulmonary hypertension, which is a rare progressive uh, lung condition when I was 30. And I had been spending many years going to different doctors saying that something is wrong. I'm having these symptoms. Nothing is alleviating them. Something is wrong. Something is wrong only to be met with doctors who essentially told me to lose weight. If you lose weight, you will feel better, never considering that my body was gaining weight because I was retaining fluid um, because of my heart and lung conditions. And so it made me realize that all of the times that I was saying something is wrong, that there was a bias because of the size of my body. And it took me finding one doctor who took my symptoms seriously for me to be diagnosed. And by the time that happened, my heart was working at 16%. Wow. So what you just described, is that consistent with the rest of your life experience? Having to go doctor to doctor and and get second and third opinions? It has been to some degree. I was a fat child. So when I was eight, I was diagnosed with asthma. I had really chronic asthma in and out of the hospital for many years. So I was put on a steroid designed to curb the illness from recurring every winter in my case, and it caused me to gain weight. And so my parents were taking me from doctor to doctor, trying to find someone who would treat the asthma without being so concerned about the weight. So Mm -hmm. it's definitely experience I've had for a long period of time. 
Now, the full title of your book is "Weightless: Making Space for My Resilient Body and Soul." How exactly do you make that space for yourself? I'm very committed to self care, and not the way we think about self care in terms of buying products or spending money or the capitalist aspect of self care, but really listening to my body and prioritizing what my body needs, whatever that may be. I am one of those people who will take a nap in the middle of the day if my body is tired. I stop working after eight hours. I never overwork now because I know that my body needs rest to recuperate and to move through illnesses. So making space for myself looks like advocating for what my body needs, finding doctors who treat me with the care and the respect and the dignity that I feel I deserve, and ensuring that my body is my top priority. Nothing else comes above ensuring that I feel well. How did you make that shift to to that brand of self care that you described? Therapy, honestly,、mm. therapy. I say all the time, I'm a sense, recovering. Yeah. yeah, I'm a recovering workaholic, and therapy was was essential to helping me realize that I'm not successful as a writer and as a journalist because I overwork. I'm successful because I'm good at my job, and I don't need to be a perfectionist, and I don't need to work myself into the ground. As long as I show up and do my work to the best of my ability in the time that I'm allotted, I will continue to be successful. And recognizing that was a huge shift for me and changed everything in terms of how I treat myself and my body. In our last segment, Mikey Mercedes introduced us to the concept of fat liberation, right? And you consider yourself a fat liberationist too, right? I do. Yes. What does it mean for you, that term? It means that I am an activist who is committed to creating a more equitable world for fat people in many iterations of what that looks like. But essentially, I'm committed to dismantling fat phobia in all of our systems, increasing the representations of nuanced fat people in our media, particularly our visual media, so television and film. And committed to creating the sorts of policies that allow fat people to retain their dignity at work, at amusement parks, anywhere in which fat people are interacting with systems. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and to wrap our series, Bias Against Bodies, we've been talking to writer and magazine editor Yvette Dion about her recent memoir, Weightless. So I want to change gears just a little bit. The、uh, American Academy of Pediatrics. Updated its guidance on childhood obesity earlier this month, and it, it caught a lot of our eyes here on the Reset team. You also recently wrote a piece in BuzzFeed News about some of these new guidelines. So, for anyone who might not have heard, Yvette, what did the AAP say? For a long period of time, the AAP took what they called a watch and wait approach to children who they deemed obese, meaning that they didn't intervene when it came to that child's weight. And the new guidelines ask doctors to aggressively intervene. So, if you are under the age of fourteen, your doctor can now prescribe your child weight loss medication. If they are over the age of fourteen, they can prescribe your child bariatric surgery to prevent that child from becoming larger as they age.、Mm. And so, it's a new approach. It's very aggressive because, in their view, and in the view of the scientists who did this research. If a child is obese、um, at that age, the likelihood of them continuing to be obese increases, and so they're intervening very early and very aggressively. So, what do you think about this guidance? I think it's incredibly misguided. I think on one end, 
um, doctors and scientists and researchers are trying to approach the idea of obesity from a new angle, which is that it's not a moral failure. It is something that every body is different. It is something that's a brain disease as, as some of the science out there now. And on the flip side, they're still saying that treating that requires weight loss. And so it requires aggressive approaches to weight loss to make people's bodies smaller, opposed to asking our society to shift the way in which we think about fatness overall. So it's still coming to the same conclusion, but using different language to do it. This reminds me of a a section in your memoir where in the first essay that's titled No Country for Fat Kids, you write, quote, The reality is that fat children are bombarded with reminder after reminder that their bodies are abnormal and need to be fixed, end quote. So how does what we're seeing now, you think, play into this decades-long history of, of targeting kids for their weight? It's an absolute continuation of it. It's no different. The the example that I point out in the book is Michelle Obama's Let's Move campaign, which often took similar approaches to trying to curb the idea of childhood obesity. And so what we have is decades-long research that says that by targeting children, you actually cause them to gain more weight because the fat shaming and the not wanting to go to the doctor, the surveillance that's happening sometimes at home but often at schools and at doctor's offices – actually encourages children to eat more because they're trying to eat away that shame of being surveilled all the time. And so it's just a continuation of that. I don't imagine it's actually the new guidelines are actually going to make any difference in the rates of childhood obesity. It doesn't address the systemic issues that sometimes cause children to gain weight, such as food deserts, for instance, poverty, for instance, none of that addresses those systemic issues. It just targets children. And when you target children, the results are never good. Imagine this kind of healthcare approach was around when you were a child. I can imagine. Yeah. How do you think it would have affected your experience seeking care? I think it would have affected it tremendously. I am very fortunate that I come from a family that primarily has larger people. My mother is a larger woman. My grandmother's a larger woman. I was surrounded by larger women throughout my entire life. And so my parents were really hyper-conscious of not making me ashamed of my body and finding doctors who didn't either. But I imagine that that would have been even more difficult than it was when I was a child 30 years ago because of this new guidance. We've seen a a pretty decent amount of media coverage about these AAP guidelines. Is there anything that you wish journalists would do differently when covering weight stigma? I wish journalists would stop taking doctors and researchers, particularly in the realm of obesity, at face value to stop just re-reporting what they're saying without interrogating the underlying notion of it, the underlying bias of it, because every study that has been released about doctors and fat bias shows that the medical industry has a bias against fat people. They consider fat people on the same level as folks who have addictions, as folks who are unhoused, that they're in the same realm. And so if every study is showing that, and that is the underlying reason why we're here, then just repeating what doctors and scientists are saying without that context, without interrogating, without challenging, just allows fat phobia to continue. 
So we've got to also be honest, right? Advocating for yourself, it's not easy, right? It, it can be hard to do even in the best of circumstances, let alone when you have a doctor who's breezing in for you know, a 10-minute appointment and, and trying to rush you out, right? So right. give us some advice for people who want or need to advocate for themselves in healthcare settings like you did. The first thing I always recommend to people is to find a health at every size doctor. They have a database at health at every size doctors. And these are physicians, many of whom are family physicians who believe that there isn't an immediate link between weight and health. So finding a doctor who believes in that philosophy is critical. So I always say to start there. And then in terms of advocating for yourself, two of the quick things I recommend. One, you can always call ahead of a doctor's appointment a couple of days before, a week before, and just make it clear that you do not want to use this appointment to talk about weight, to set a very clear boundary. You can also... When you're going into the doctor, we just assume that it's normal to just get weighed. Unless you are getting anesthesia or something that's dictated by weight, you can always decline to be weighed when you go into the doctor's office. And if you forget, because sometimes we freeze up, it's great to train the person who's going with you, whether it's a partner or a parent or a friend, to say, hey, when we get in here, remind me to tell them I don't want to be weighed. Very good advice. I I had no idea that you could even... Do that. That's great. I want to also end on a high note, Yvette. The, the final essay in your book, Weightless, it's titled Back to the Fat Future. So what do you want to see in that future? What What's giving you hope? I am hopeful that with lobbying and organizing, that the fat liberation movement can begin to make inroads in terms of policy. And so that looks like advocating with the federal government and state legislatures to pass workplace discrimination laws. So currently, Michigan is the only state in the United States that forbids employers from discriminating against employees because of the size of their bodies. That should be a nationwide legislation. That should not happen in any state in our union. So that's something that I can see in this future. I can see a future in which we are working with the United States government and with Congress to try to pass legislation to limit the amount of dieting ads that you see, not only on television, but online, on social media, to regulate the way in which that is peddled out, particularly to young people. We could set standards as they did in the early 1930s, 1940s, and 1950s about the amount of representation that you see on television of fat characters and what those limits should be in the way that they did for Black characters back then. That's a possibility. And then, of course, ending the surveillance of children. I think children have to endure so much already to, on top of that, surveil their bodies and the size of their bodies and aggressively intervene as their bodies are growing. That should stop, full stop, no matter what it takes. You've given us a lot to think about. Yvette Dion is a writer, magazine editor, and the author of a memoir that's called Weightless. Thank you, Yvette.